Amen. You may be seated. I think it's wonderful when you are able to have a child dedication service and uh, see these parents and these uh, beautiful children up here. And I don't know about you, but uh, I didn't start thinking this way until I started having grandchildren. But when you look at children, you see so much potential. I mean, and there's no telling what God could do with the, these children that were dedicated to the Lord by their parents here this morning. So I want to commend you as parents. To thank you for taking the time and the family members that are here with us today. Thank you for being here to support uh, these children are being dedicated to the Lord. and uh, It's such an important step. We did the same thing with our children, and uh, our children are serving the Lord, and I hope and pray the same for you, that they'll come to Christ and serve the Lord all their days. And I just want to commend you as parents for taking the time to do that today. Well, we're going to continue today our kingdom culture. I do want to thank Gary for filling in last week. I understand he did a phenomenal job, and it's so refreshing to be able to go away and trust the pulpit to someone. Of course, he does let you out a little early, so I'm going to make up for that this week. So, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I probably will go a little long. Anyway, um, if you will, look at the series introduction there. Because we are a collection of many people from various places, backgrounds, and stories, we believe culture making is essential for unifying our church family around the shared vision as we carry the message of Jesus to the world. We exist to love God, connect with others, and reach the world by creating a culture where, and we've already seen the first six of these, Jesus is our lead story, scripture and prayer prime, worship is a lifestyle, we are family, we is greater than me, we get to is greater than we got to. Again, this is the culture we're trying to create around here. And today we're going to be looking at transformation is greater than tradition. Now look there with me, if you will, in your outline. Our church had its beginnings in 1949. That's a long time ago. Uh, but our beginnings began in 1949, actually October of 1949, when believers came together on County Home Road, home road excuse me, to plant a church. Now, let me just say this this morning. It's very ironic that we're talking about that date and what that means. This past week, if you're not aware of this, uh, we actually lost our last active charter member. She went home to be with the Lord, and she was ready to go home to be with the Lord. And uh, I tell you, it was a, we had a service here on Wednesday. It was a beautiful service, and God, I think, was all over it as we honored her, but we also honored her Lord. And as a result, we were able to honor the work that goes on, has gone on here at Putnam. And these flowers are, are from the, the service on Wednesday. And, and uh, I do ask you to remember the family. But Miss Ann Lane went home to be with the Lord, our last active charter member. And so we do ask you to pray for them. So you can see we had a, we had, we've always had a rich heritage, a rich history here at Putnam. Look at there on your outline. From those early days to the present, we have endeavored to continue to follow the Holy Spirit as he leads. We've been blessed through the years to have leaders and laymen who appreciate our traditions but are not bound by them. We know that as a culture changes around us, we are challenged to consider changing ourselves. Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, our methods, creativity, and presentation of the gospel will require us at times to reach beyond our traditions for the greater cause of lives being transformed by a never-changing message. Therefore, the greater emphasis of our ministry is not placed on the restrictions of our traditions, but on the unlimited possibilities of the transformation that can take place in an individual's life. 
And so with that being said, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 is what I believe is, is Paul is there in this passage and he's warning us about putting too much emphasis on religion and tradition. His testimony before his encounter with Jesus, many of you know his story on the road to Damascus, was steeped in religion and tradition. Much of his writing warned against these because they are man-made and accomplish nothing for the kingdom. Nor are they beneficial for individuals seeking to please God. And in his story and in what he's going to share in Philippians chapter 3, it surrounds that whole language. All the language is around that thought. And so if you will, look on your outline. Paul's journey from tradition to transformation. The first thing we see there is his limited traditional past. Now, if you were to go to Paul before his conversion, before his encounter with Jesus, and you were to sit down with him, he would talk to you, I'm sure, about the rich tradition from which he came from. And, and listen, I'm sure it served him well, or at least he thought it did. But that tradition, that, that religion that he served so faithfully to the point that he was willing to kill those who, who came in contradiction to it, 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 did not, it did not unleash the possibilities. It was very limited in its approach. And so the first thing I want you to see is his worthless testimony. Now, I didn't give those words to it. He gave it himself. That's the way he described it. Now think about this. Before his conversion, before he came to Christ, he considered, I want you to think about this, his previous testimony to be worthless. I mean, worthless. <laughs> and I'll show you that in just a moment. In verse 4, Paul tells us that he tried everything as it related to tradition. And then he came to the conclusion that it was, look on your outline, a byproduct of the flesh. So look at Philippians 3 verse 4. He says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. What he's talking about is his, his testimony before Christ. It was back there that he was doing all these things in the name of religion. It was, he was doing all those things in the name of the traditions of the Pharisees. And he was out there and he was doing what he thought was a work, a great work for God. But then you know the rest of the story. He had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And what he's telling us here in verse 4 is that he came away thinking, you know something? Everything I did up to that point was all born and it was seed bedded in the flesh. I was out there doing my own thing. Now, he once believed, listen to this, and this is key. He once believed that he could make himself acceptable to God through his own efforts. And y'all, that was his biggest mistake. His biggest mistake. In verse 5, Paul tells us that he tried everything as it related to tradition. And then he came to the conclusion, look on your outline, that it was a byproduct of religion. In verse 5 of chapter 3, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law. He was a Pharisee. And a lot of that whole language that he uses when he starts talking about being a Pharisee, a lot of that's what led him astray. It was that whole idea that a lot of what the Pharisees believed were, were not only some of the riches of God's word in the Old Testament, but there was so much that they added to it until it was almost unrecognizable. 
And so when Jesus shows up, he's out there living the the life that God called him to live for those 33 years. And the religious would look on it and they didn't even recognize it. That's how much they changed it in the name of religion and in the name of their flesh. There was something they didn't even recognize because they looked at Jesus. And when Jesus said, hey, I'm the son of God, they couldn't get their minds around that because it was so unlike what they taught. What they taught was man-made. What they taught was born of the flesh. What they taught was born of religion. But there was something totally different that, that God was trying to do. And then he goes on, he says, Concern, look at verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness, which is the law, I was blameless before men. Now let me just say this. Would you say for a Jew, he had a great testimony. You look at it and you think, man, he's crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. He, he's the epitome. But you know what? In these verses, he's telling us that he was the epitome of someone who was trying to make themselves acceptable to God. And I'm just going to tell you, there's no way you can do that in and of your strength. There's definitely no way it can happen through the flesh. And it will never happen through religion. And he is sitting here telling us this. So the whole pursuit of Paul's religion was to be righteous. Listen, he believed he could live out the law perfectly and be righteous before God. He honestly thought that. Outwardly, he appeared to have succeeded because he was blameless before men until he met the resurrected Christ. And something began to change. You see, before his encounter with Christ, he thought he was right before God. Because he was trusting in tradition and religion and not transformation. This is where everything changed according to the commentator Warren Wiersbe. Many of you have studied him, but listen to what he said. He said, Paul had to lose his religion to find God's salvation. And y'all, that's a great quote. The same thing has to happen with us. We must get to the point where we realize that our flesh will never produce anything good before God. And our religion will never add up to God's standard. It just won't happen. And so we see that they always come up short. Now, let's transition. Paul's journey from tradition to transformation, his limited traditional past, but... He soon had a profound profound realization. Paul, after his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, realized that he was on the wrong path. He realized that salvation was not based on the things he did and traditions that he held. But in the person he was trusting, the person of Jesus Christ, everything began to change for him. He started to realize that the flesh wasn't producing anything. Matter of fact, you go study the writings, writings of Paul. You know what he tells you? The flesh does not accomplish a thing for God. But boy, before Christ, he sure thought it did. He warned us against religion. He warned us against the heretics of the first, uh, first century. Those who, who misguided people by taking God's word in the wrong way and creating things that were uh, profound to them. But look here, we see something begin to happen in Paul. And the first thing we see there on your outline is a profitable evaluation. He began to look at things around him. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. He said, but what things were gained to me, you know what he says there? Those things that I held dear. Those things that I thought pleased God. Those things in which I really, with all my energy, I pursued. Look at what he says. But what things were gained to me, 
These I have counted loss for Christ. Now notice what he says there. He says loss for Christ. It doesn't say loss for Jesus. It says loss for Christ. You see, I believe that was intentional. You see, even the Pharisees looked for a Messiah. Even they did. And so the word Christ there is the title for Messiah. And so here's what you need to understand. Paul's whole pursuit all his life was to look for the Messiah. They, they were looking for the Messiah. The only problem is their man-made traditions, the man, everything that was produced from the flesh, their religion, guess what? It led them astray. So when he showed up, they didn't even recognize him. But here's what's interesting. He said, all those things that I held dear, all those things that I was pursuing, I've counted loss for the true Messiah. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost. What he's trying to do is give you emphasis. He's talking about everything of his life's pursuit. And just before that, what did he do? He lined up some pretty good credentials. He said, it means nothing. It means nothing. He says, I have counted. Look at that. He says, I have counted. It means that he began to evaluate his life and found that his whole life was built on himself instead of the finished work of Christ. After careful evaluation, what were gains to him were really losses. The traditions he kept, the religion he practiced. He says, it meant nothing. But yet my whole life was, was bent towards those things. That's what I was pursuing. So we see his profound realization, and it led him to a profound endeavor. In Philippians chapter 3, I want you to look at the second part of verse 8. It says, For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. What did he lose? He lost his pursuits. He lost, his pers- he lost all his perspectives. He lost his profits. What many would say in his, his testimony before Christ, they say, oh man, look at all these credentials. Look at all the, how he, he profited from all these things. He lost it all. He lost his old identity. Do you realize that most commentators, most historians believe that Paul was, was uh, the, the, the Pharisee that was going to top them all? I mean, he had great credibility. And, and what's interesting about that, he says, look what he says. He says, I count them as rubbish. They mean nothing. They mean nothing to me anymore. And guess what? They've never meant anything to God. Never did mean anything to God. I thought it did. He says, and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ, the true Messiah. When he said rubbish, the NIV, the New International Version, says garbage. Actually, he was referring to dung, to waste. For those here in the, in the south that love gardening, manure, okay? It's anything that looks like that. Th- things that was found in a sewer, basically. All his past gains were as manure compared to the knowledge and the gaining of Christ. Didn't mean anything. Paul's journey from tradition to transformation, look on your outline. His limited traditional past, but now his unlimited transformative future. And the first thing we see there is his worthy testimony. Now think about it. He goes from what he considered a worthless testimony. Are you convinced that that's the way he thought of it? Yeah, you read it right there. You see it. To to a testimony now that that is worth something. And so the first thing we see is a new infatuation. Now the word infatuation, I went, and I've always known what I thought it meant, but I went and did a little research on the definition of it. And I tell you, it's become one of my favorite new words. 
Okay? Infatuation. Listen, listen to what it means. It means all-absorbing passion. It means extravagant passion. Now, those who know Paul's new testimony, would you say these are good descriptions? Oh, yeah. Really good descriptions. This is what Paul's whole life is now in. Look at Philippians 3, 9. And be found in him. This is, we're going to talk about this in just a moment. But that now his new identity, his new testimony, everything that drives him now. And now being found in him, not having my own righteousness. It's not something that I could have produced in my flesh. It's not something religion could even come close to. It's not that my traditions could get me there. He said, Listen, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. And the righteousness which is from God by faith. It's not a righteousness, as I said, that I can produce in my flesh. It's not a righteousness that religion will produce. It's not a righteousness that tradition will produce. He is saying here, it's not something I was able to accomplish in my own, but it is something that has been now given to me. It's a big deal here. The phrase, in him, Paul uses more than 75 times in his writings to the churches. It means our identity is in him. We are righteous. Listen, because he is righteous. That's what's been given to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look here on the screen. It says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become The righteousness of God in him. That's Jesus. Our identity is found in the righteousness that's now been given to us. Now think about that. If you've ever heard me do a study on Paul, the one thing that we know about Paul is he spent his whole life desiring to be righteous before God. Even before he came to Christ. He believed somehow he was misguided. He believed he could get there on his own. He said, no. It didn't mean anything. All those pursuits were in the wrong direction, the wrong perspective. It didn't come to anything. Now it's about Christ. Look at what Paul wrote just before his death. 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says this, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And then right here, this next verse is basically his lifelong pursuit. Before Christ, he was seeking righteousness. It never added up. After Christ, he was given righteousness. And guess what? It added up. Because it was given to him by Christ. He says, finally, my whole life pursuit. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will what? Will give to me. When I come to terms about what salvation truly is all about, that it's something that's provided by God the Father through Jesus His Son, in which He hung on that cross to pay for my sin, and all of a sudden He became the object of sin. The wrath of God was poured out on His Son. It punished that sin. And guess what? As a result of all that happening there, now there's a transference of of, of our sin being punished. Now we are seen, listen, righteous before God. Because of our faith in Him. It's now been given to us. And so we see this new infatuation. Paul is all absorbed with this righteousness that comes with Christ. His flesh couldn't produce it. His religion couldn't produce it. His traditions couldn't produce it. It all came by way of transformation. 
Next, we see his unlimited transformative future, his, his worthy testimony. He now has a new intimacy. Philippians chapter 3, look at verse 10, the very first part. He says that I may, that I may know him. The word know here in this verse is not necessarily factual knowledge, but inspira- uh, experiential knowledge. The word know in, the, in Scripture in this context speaks of the most intimate of relationships. He was trading his traditions and religion for a relationship with Christ that would prove to be transformative. Something was going to happen within him that would literally transform him from something over here to something over here. The word transformation, many of you already know this, is where we get the the word metamorphosis. It's really the the most beautiful picture in creation. It's something that you could possibly see in the simplest forms of creation. When that caterpillar all of a sudden wraps itself and what some commentators and some those who, who talk about it in his own little tomb. Only for one day for him to leave that tomb and become a beautiful butterfly. And become something completely different. A new nature. A new perspective. You remember the caterpillar before? What did he do? He just walked lowly on the ground. But now what do we have? We've got a whole new perspective. You know why? Because everything changes. You see, those who, who say they have a faith in Christ, those who say that they, they, they've received this salvation so free, listen, part, the big part of that is the whole idea that transformation takes place in a person's life. There will be a change. There will be a new perspective. Something will be different. So we see a new identity. What does he say in verse, uh, the language here in verse 9? He says, and be found in him. Look at the second part of Philippians 3, uh, 3.10. It says, And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He's basically saying, I want everything that Jesus offers. I, uh, if it means i got to identify with his sufferings, if it means there's a form of death that comes my way, if it means that I can join him in his resurrection. You see, we're talking about the language of transformation. We're talking about the language of an old identity, and now there's a new identity. That's what all that language is about. And so he's saying, I want every bit of it. Then he adds, and the power of his resurrection. Paul is saying that we can know him and experience his power. The power that saves us. The power that, that helps us defeat temptation in our flesh. In his conversion, Paul traded what he thought was power for the real power found in Christ. To live the life he always wanted to. And it was a power that literally transformed his life. Next, we see his productive ministry. A new maturation. And of course that word just is just describing the process of maturing. The process of maturing. You see, one mark of spiritual maturity is when we realize we have not reached spiritual perfection. When we, when we realize we, we, do, we really don't measure up. You see, a good Pharisee back in the first century, they would, they would have thought they measured up. They would have thought they... Right there. And and most of us who would watch them would say, man, they're blameless. They got it together. Paul's saying, you know something? I have to admit, 
before Christ, I thought I was pretty much there. And then I had an encounter with him. I realized I was nothing. Look at what he says in verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. Now think about this. The, the, the phrase I press on is in the present tense. It means to run after or follow in a process. Now, the process we're talking about, we label it discipleship. Okay, but it's really the whole idea. What is, what is discipleship's end game? Transformation. Transformation. Where daddy's not recognized anymore in the house. Where the wife is not recognized. Where the employer doesn't recognize the employer anymore because something different is happening. Because there's something that's happening. Not that they've already attained, but they are maturing in what it means in their salvation. And so he says, I'm not there yet. I press on, though, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Now, when it says laid hold of me, you know what that literally means? It means this. This is, this is a great word picture. It literally means that Paul was out there one day. His name was Saul at the time. Living the life he thought he needed to live. Thought he was pleasing God. Thought he had it all together. And then one day, out of nowhere... You ever heard of a blindsided, uh, a blindsided uh, tackle? Have you ever heard something like that? It's where he's just kind of going, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he was tackled. Did you know that's what Christ did to him on his way to Damascus? Out of nowhere. He didn't see it coming. All of a sudden, he was tackled. It's a whole idea. It could be mean arrested him. He says, but brethren, look at verse 13. I do not count myself to have apprehended. He's not basically saying I apprehended him because my flesh couldn't produce it. My religion couldn't produce it. My traditions couldn't produce it. But I'm here to tell you, he apprehended me. He came after me. And I guarantee you, and I hope this is your testimony because this is the way salvation looks. He comes after you, whether you're a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old, a teenager, a 21-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 40-year-old, an 80-year-old. He comes after you. And how many of you are glad he did? You see, Paul's given an honest evaluation of his spiritual condition. He says God is in the process of growing him, maturing him, transforming him. Listen, he, God was not interested in adding other things to his life. He wasn't interested in adding more tradition to his life or adding more things he can do in the flesh or adding more religion to his life. No, he was totally trying to transform him from the inside out. That's what God's goal was for Paul, and that's what he's after in each of us. So what does this process look like? What does the process of transformation look like? This is a verse I use at least one out of four Sundays, it seems. Romans 12, 2. What does it say? Don't be conformed to this world. Don't, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Now, some of you will never know this, but if you were to go and say, okay, Jesus, we know the Holy Spirit led Paul to write this. Based on what you saw in the first century, where do you think that, could, that would preach? He said, you know, it would preach to those who are in the darkness of sin and those who are in the darkness of religion. Did you know that religion can conform you into something that God never intended you to be? 
Your flesh definitely will carry you there. But sometimes religion will try to conform you. Religion will try to squeeze you into its box. And I'm just here here to tell you that the religion that I know about is very man-made. It's one in things in which, here's what we're going to do. We're going to create a list here. And we're going to start measuring how good everybody is. And if you're looking like me and I'm looking like you, we can have fellowship. And if we can pull that off, we'll be doing good. But he says this. He says, do not be conformed to this world where we're talking about the darkest of sin or we're talking about religion, but be transformed. That's what he's after by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here's another way of looking at it. Hebrews chapter 12. Look at this. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Therefore, it's referring back to chapter 11. He's giving you this whole list of everybody's lives who've been transformed. Abraham's in the list. Moses is in the list. There's a bunch of people in the list. And he goes on and he says, okay, since that's out there in front of us, let's, let's understand that process, but let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. How are we going to do that? Well, we're going to look to Jesus. He's the author and finisher of this whole thing. For who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, therefore making it possible for us, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what that last phrase means? It means this, that we are trusting in a finished work. A finished work. It's not something that's yet to be determined. It's finished. It's nailed down. You, you can build your life on it. And the work he's talking about, again, I know you're sick of hearing it, is not anything your flesh can produce, anything religion can produce, and anything tradition can produce. It's the transforming work and nature of what the Holy Spirit's trying to do in each of our lives. He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. What, what could every weight be? Did you know that weight could be good things? I'm convinced that that's where a lot of Christians are. They, they may not be in the deepest, darkest throes of sin, but there's a lot of Christians who are weighted down for the good things, what they consider the good things in their life. Flesh, man-made worship, traditions that are meaningless. Paul warns us of these things. Lay them aside. Let God have his way in transforming you. Next, we see his unlimited transformative future, his productive ministry. We see a new meditation now, a new meditation. Look at what he says in the last part of verse 13. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind me, reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Now think about this. Forgetting is not clear in your mind of the past. How many of you have ever tried that? Doesn't work, does it? It doesn't mean clearing your mind. But here's what it does mean. Not allowing your mind to be controlled by the past. That's the problem with a lot of us in here today. We can't forget it. Well, guess what? You'll never forget it. If you think you've got to forget what's back there, you'll never forget what's back there. You you know how I look at what's back there? The things that I did in my flesh, the things that, 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 that stood to rule my testimony, the things that are back there. Listen, you know what? how I look at it now? I look, at, I look at it with this whole idea that grace surrounds every bit of that. I'm walking in grace now. I'm not walking in shame anymore. I'm not walking in guilt. I'm walking in grace. When I look back there and I see my accomplishments, 
You know what we do? We just, we, a lot of times we say, well, I accomplished so much for the Lord early on in my life. I think I'm just going to take a break. You won't find that anywhere. And, and so what, what do we need to forget? This is not on your outline. But here's what we need to forget. We need to forget our accomplishments. Every day is a new day. Every day is a new day. His mercies are new every day. And so every day is a new day. Why, what happens when you rely on your accomplishments? It leaves you proud and ineffective. What happens when you look back at your defeats and your failures? It, it brings you down, puts you in bondage to guilt and shame. Paul was saying that he quit trusting in things in the past to shape his view of his salvation. But he started trusting in the transformative power of the Holy Spirit in his life. Next, we see a new motivation. Philippians 3, 14. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The Greek word for goal there carries the idea to see. It literally means everything in Paul's life was almost pulled out from under him. (laughs) And now he sees everything completely different. Everything completely different. Paul's new motivation put him on the right path. So here's the application this morning. An attempt to move from tradition to the greater emphasis of transformation requires careful evaluation. Let me tell you what's wrong with a lot of us as Christians right now. We have our quiet time. Let's say we have our quiet time. We go before God's word. Hopefully you ask him to reveal something in your life or whatever that needs to be taken care of. We go to him in prayer. Uh, hopefully it's not just something you check off the list. Transformation doesn't happen that way. It happens when we are engaged in the Word of God. And we allow it not to just hit us as, as knowledge, but we allow it to hit us as something that can transform us. And so what you're looking at here is that whole idea that we want the emphasis of our lives to be the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. That cannot be done in the flesh. It requires what God wants to do. So how are we going to evaluate? Well, I think there's two ways you evaluate. I think we evaluate ourselves as individuals. and We, we evaluate ourselves as church. Because we, God's people, make up the church. The church is not these walls. It's not this structure. It's not this site. The church is us. The people who make up the, the body of Christ. And so evaluation one, let's look at that. Evidence of debilitating and deceitful tradition. How are we going to test it? Well, here's how we can test it. The whole idea of preference versus principle. I've preached on this before. Many of you have said you still remember the sermon. Guess what? I have a lot of preferences. I prefer to go to certain restaurants. Outback. She's even got me going to Carabas. Pretty impressive place. Hope you make it one day. I like it. I have preferences. There's things that I want in my life. There's things. But listen, when the preferences start dictating the innermost of my desires and what I want and what I think is right and get all in there to perspective, I've, I've shortchanged what God wants to do in my life. I need to be driven by my principles. My principles, my preferences, what are they? Things that I prefer, things in which I've chosen, favoring one thing over another. What's principle? It's a fundamental doctrine. It's fundamental law. It's fundamental truth. It's a determining characteristic of something. It's an essential quality. 
We as Christians need to be principle-driven. But when we make our preferences the principle, that's when we're in danger of it becoming a product of our flesh, our traditions, uh, religion. That's where we get in trouble. You see, that again, what blinded the Pharisees? If you would have observed them in their day, you would have respected them. You would have looked at them and said, man, I wish I could, I could be that for God the way they are. But let me tell you, everything about them was wrong. Somehow they made their preferences and what they wanted, they made it into principle. And then when Jesus shows up, didn't recognize him. We got to be careful with that. In Romans chapter 14, Paul was saying that one of the key uh, keys of, of unity in the church is to agree, to disagree agreeably. To feel that we all have to agree on everything is unrealistic. It'll never happen this side of heaven. Did you know that? It doesn't even happen in my marriage. The woman won't agree with me on everything. She here. Oh, yeah, she's right there. Uh oh. I thought this was 11 o'clock service. <laughs> anyway, to agree to disagree and still love and accept each other is one of the greatest marks of maturity. The goal of ministry, listen, is not to hold on to tradition, but to foster and equip those for transformation. That's what we got to be about. That's what we got to be known for. Paul tells us how he did it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm almost through. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. That more can come to Christ through my life. And to the Jews I became a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as, as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. He's talking about the Orthodox Jew. Those who followed the law to the hilt. And then he said, to those who are without the law, as without the law, that would be the Gentiles. He says, not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means see some saved. Now, his focus and goals for others went from religion and tradition to transformation. And the only way he could do that was to lay aside his preferences. To reach those that he knew he was called to reach. Now, what does that look like? What does that look like? He says, lastly, now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Now, I'm, I'm just going to be as transparent as I know to be, and I'll, I'll go quickly. There's not a lot of churches... In this community, and I'm not, I'm not trying to judge churches. Like I, I'm, I'm making an evaluation that's not reaching. There's a lot of churches that are not reaching all generations. They're just not. 80% of the churches that you find in this county, I went through and looked at what I thought I was observing, are reaching only a certain generation. Or maybe a certain two generations. God has called our church, all churches, to be generational. How do we know that? Because the Bible says that the young may learn from the old. That the young may learn from the old. We need one another. We need to reach out. There are very few churches in this community. Listen, 
that have moved in a direction where it can reach all generations. And I'm here to tell you, I'm here to tell you, God expects us to reach the next generation. And it may require us to lay aside our preferences, but we better be principled in what we do. And the principle of it is that we share the gospel, that we bring people in. Listen, nothing thrills me more than seeing these young couples standing up here saying, we want to dedicate our children to the Lord. Did you know that churches don't even have dedication services because they don't have any young people? Just something to think about. Evaluation two. Evidence of undeniable and unimpaired transformation. The test is religion versus relationship. You can see a beautiful story with Paul and also King David. Legalism is when I take my perceived God-given convictions and force them on you without scriptural support. If you'll believe as I believe, feel as I feel, think as I think, eat what I eat, drink what I drink, look as I do, do always as I do, and then and only then we will have fellowship with one another. Jesus, listen, let's put it in perspective. Jesus had more disagreement and trouble with the legalist of his day than anyone else in Scripture. It was the religious people he made up tight because, listen, he was always doing things that broke their made-up rules, that broke their made-up traditions, that broke their made-up religion. So in conclusion, to be all God has called us to be as a church family, we must create a culture that is not bound by the limitations of tradition. We must not be satisfied until transformation in the lives of individuals becomes the theme, motivation, and goal of our overall ministry. You know why that's important? Because that's what the New Testament teaches that's what Jesus says, how he concluded every one of the Gospels. There was some message in there. Go get them. Let's pray. We're not going to have an invitation. I think I've given you enough to think about. If you want to join the church, try it again next week, okay? <laughs> if you want to know Jesus, I'll be here at the front, okay? Father, we thank you so much for your blessings, Lord. We thank you for... Uh, just the reality of who you are in our lives. And, and Father, I just pray right now that you would help us as individuals to realize what we've been called to. Lord, help us to evaluate where, what, how we see things, what we think the church should look like, how, how we need to conduct our lives. Help us to look at it through the lens of Scripture, Lord. Lord, help us to understand the difference between preference and principle. Help us to understand the difference between religion and relationship. Lord, I just pray that you just help us to become more and more healthy as we sense your transforming power in each of our lives as individuals, but also as a church. I want to ask the ushers to come forward if they will. Father, we also pray that you'll take this offering and use it as only you can as we attempt to do what you call us to do, to reach people. We thank you for what you're going to do in that. In Jesus' name, amen.